people say the word enemy among soldiers when we were there. You know, they were mostly like sort of slurs that were used instead. Haji, you know, um, which is religious and I mean, it's a huge slur, and uh, which happens in most wars where you try to otherize the people in some way yeah. that's different from your culture and makes it easy to objectify and separate and make them less human. So Vietnam, there were many Charlie, you know, for example. But Charlie was also a term of respect, you know, because there was a respect for who was the, the ability of the person they were fighting against. Did, was there a similar kind of respect? In there was from me, but I didn't sense that so much from most of the soldiers around me. Why? But that could be my, you know, I could be misinterpreting that. I'm not really sure, you know. And, and also there have been success, there have been waves of soldiers going to Iraq. So I was there in one time period. And just like a word, you know, being reinvented and developed in its definition, um, the successive waves of soldiers going there, sort of their, their experiences were different yeah. as it went on. You know, like 2006 to 2007 to 2008, right in there, it was a particular bad period. And, and I think there, there's a soldier experience or military experience in Iraq during that period that's even maybe more, much more jaded than what I think my my own period was, because you were you because yeah. you, you were very specific there, right? Fairly, yeah. pretty, pretty early, but you know, like the invasion troops, they wouldn't even talk to us. The guys we were replacing, they wouldn't like cross talk to say, "Hey, watch out for this, or watch out for that." They, I'd never experienced in the military before where nobody. We were cherries. We were there because they'd been there for the real war, and we were there for like ice cream. And we were in our bases, and the bases were already there, and we were just. We're like police officers showing up after the war. Because they've been there for it. Because know? the fall of Saddam and that sort of the war is over and yeah. all those sorts of narratives yeah. that Yeah. And then what we found was that uh, that you know, that a lot of uh, the attrition to our unit over time was significant, much more than I think you know, you look at the numbers of dead there you know, it's and the wounded um, exceeded the invasion unit, I believe. I'm not sure if those numbers are right, but so Either way, I guess the main point is, is our, I remember a lieutenant, and I think this was coming down through the chain of command, was saying, you know, hey, remember how we didn't get, nobody cross-talked, and the guys we replaced, they didn't help us understand the country we're coming into as much as possible. Don't do that to the next guy. And so we were, we consciously, I remember consciously, as a group, we were trying to, you know, school, as much, share as much information as we could with the, with the person we were doing a right seat, what they called a right seat, left side drive or something. Where you know they come in to train next side and then they take over okay. from us, yeah. And that unit, in fact, did see far more attrition to the you know people killed and wounded. Uh, it's the violence spiked even more for them. Yeah. Is that because there was a slight memory of that of maybe the first Gulf War with with the initial invasion that it all seemed quick and you know I use the word painless very advisedly, but it seemed. Rapid to you know yeah. the fall of Saddam, the president says it's done, and we can all go home. And then, and then, a decade later, it's yeah. I think in this particular case, it was uh, the initial group. Um, they've been through horrific combat, and they've been a part of that. And they'd seen a lot of horrible things. and been a part of it, mm. and um, I think by the time we came in, it seemed relatively quiet, mm. and and then it it picked up too. The Iraqi people were a bit, a little bit. I mean, comparatively, seemed as a, as a whole. This isn't fair to put as a whole, but it, it a lot of people I think were trying to figure out like, well, how's the dust going to settle? How, how's this going to work out? Who's, you know, is this going to work out where peace, you know, some some road towards peace is going to happen or something? Mm. And then I think it, 
you could sense during the time I was there, um, Abu Ghraib uh, came to light, and, and it just it was like a, a it was kind of light switch, and you could see people's deep disappointment on people's faces and and resentment and anger, a whole slew of emotional reactions among the people. I could see it on their faces as we drive through or walk through, you know, towns and and all. Can I talk about the different ways that you, in the particular memoir, um, yeah. imagine and portray the Iraqi? And there's a sense of, of what you said, that that disappointment or the mixture of disappointment and fear, maybe in, in a, a raid, which I think is, is also, I think, in a, a, a poem too, where you talk about cows in a, in a stall, almost sort of judging you that there are, there are children and, and women. Did you have that sense fairly early on about the potential for disappointment or the... Oh yeah, similar to that first day learning about who do I do I have to be concerned about who might be the person that I might have to shoot or be shot at, you know, by. Does that make sense? You yeah. know, I mean, in a similar way, um, there were there was just uh, there were so many oblique attacks, roadside bombs, one of the signature marks of this current the war in Iraq, and um, you know there were snipers or you know there would be a rocket attack, maybe one rocket that would fly over and scare the shit out of everybody and then nothing had happened um, or the the main one was mortar attacks so these mortars would come in and the mortars kept coming you know they would just be it was just a part of the of the, the routine in a sense it come any time of day in some sense it was what we would call harassment and interdictory interdictory fire I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right but okay. you know but harassment fire um, and it was like um, I remember Rumsfeld was, you know, in, in terms of a political figure, he was under great pressure to get this Defense Department working and to change the narrative in the newspapers at home, right? Which was, at that point, early on, was a body count that was starting to show up as a narrative in the papers. Okay. And it was not helping the administration. It wasn't useful or whatever, you know what I mean? So, And, and maybe, you know, if I gave him some kind of, maybe he just wanted to, he, he wanted to solve that problem. I don't yeah. know, not, not have Americans getting killed or something. So he, um, he, at one point, he was sort of famous for saying, "You know, I want them, the people that, that were working in Abu in um, Guantanamo, right, to get my eyes." He made it into a verb, like you know, "get my eyes their ass," right, and uh, so they were, you know, transferring some of the techniques from there. And the reason was is because they they thought that you know they equated torture with actionable intelligence, you know, that they, if you could, like, we got to find out who are the guys that are doing this. We got to catch them and stop them from doing it. You know, really breaking it down to, what, we didn't know who they were. So we were going out just doing raids night after night after night. And to me, from the microcosm within the macrocosm, a sergeant really low in the food chain, you know, down inside of it, I can't see the bird's eye view of the larger picture. You know, I can imagine it, but I'm not really mm. there looking at maps and troop concentrations and political movements and and intrigue and money and what companies are involved. You know, I don't know. I'm not in those meetings and those tables. I'm the guy in the vehicle that's going to go kick the door in and go in and get some group of people this one particular night. But I knew that was happening with us repeatedly. And we would get what we call men of military age, you know, in that room. So why would we round up all the men of military age? Wouldn't it be like, would they all be just necessary because they're in the same house so they all took part in it? You know, um, <laughs> I want... You know, so what I thought was happening, you know, was that in a, in a large-scale way, the, the Iraqi prisons were just being flooded and filled with people. And I knew that was happening. But at the same time, the mortars weren't stopping. So similar to that first guy on the road, 
is from Chicago, and it's like, who am I supposed to shoot yeah. or be shot at by? Then, um, you know, who are we? Who am I supposed to be? You know, I, I felt this is something I have to live with the rest of my life. As I took part putting people in prison, who knows if they should have been there or not? You know, uh, you know, and, and how does the the judicial system works in part? Because Sergeant Turner also had been teaching college before, so I would be my nickname would be the professor when I was in my platoon for some of the guys, right? So when we come back from these raids, sometimes the, my squad leader would say, hey, professor, let's go, because he knew I could write a sentence, right? So I would write the depositions up for the raids that would be handed over to military police with the what's now in, in EPW or in, enemy prisoner of war, or this prisoner. And that deposition, I assume, would then, as they would be enter into the Iraqi judicial system, would be translated into Arabic. So my words, of Sergeant Turner's words, have been put into court, right? I'm not like Sherlock Holmes, you know, like, what do I know about investigations and, and criminal intent and all the, you know, but I'm the guy writing up some of these depositions that go as this partial evidence against the guy, you know. So complicity starts with me. I was definitely involved in it. But again, I don't think it's useful for me. I don't want to use a book as a, as a confessional because I don't think that will help why share it? You know, I can write it for myself and figure stuff out, but I think in a larger sense, how does that tie to a larger country at war, you know? How about the, the memoir in terms of where you came from, your childhood? What was very interesting is, which only occurred to me actually this morning, was there are very few there's, there's no mention of your mother or there's very yeah, few women. grandmother and yeah, that's it's, a real deficit in the book. I think. I, but know, I kind of know. thought it was interesting because yeah. I think it was, it, mm. as you said, it was very. It's a, there's a kind of masculine. It's a hyper masculine yeah. book. Yeah, because I, I would love to write a book about my grandmother. She's fascinating, and uh, and I there were portions that I had initially that I thought might go into this, but she had Alzheimer's um, the last portion of her life, a large number of years, and it was pretty. Um, I, for many years, she. Uh, I would go over sometimes, and um, like after Iraq, I went home back to California to try to sort of get back on my feet and get started and learn who is Brian rather than Sergeant Turner. And during that process, partially I would go over because um, she lived at home with my mom and dad, and so I would um, on date nights sometimes I'd go over and and basically hang out with my grandma and make dinner for her, and we would watch TV and and uh, they would go out on their dates, you know, <laughs> and uh, and to give them you know give them some time for themselves, you know, they needed. Break too. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, because it's a hundred percent twenty-four hour, twenty-four-seven. You know, uh, very emotional, difficult thing. You know, um, taking care. Of. She was um, she was very sweet and very kind. You know, my grandmother th throughout most of that whole period, or the majority of it. So it wasn't like she was uh, angry and abusive and difficult to be around. It's just difficult to. See someone who's, you know, no communication, you know, so she's very complicated. But I, I knew her before that, of course, so mm -hmm. she'd been fascinating. There were parts where, um, there's one part I thought would make it in the book, it didn't, which was that when I go over to visit it when I was a, a young man, I would go, you know, like 18, 20, right around there. I'd go over sometimes, and my grandfather was, uh, he, he would just sort of, he wouldn't hang out. He would, he wouldn't, he didn't want to stay there for the conversation that she and I might have. Right. Right. So he would, walk outside and go out to the check on the tools and the tool shed and walk by and he whatever conversation we were in he would walk by and just say oh he doesn't want to talk about that he doesn't want to hear about that you know like I, it was a very odd dynamic it was not very healthy you know but it was 
but it was intriguing. What's the conversation? But he was basically trying to stop history from being shared. You know, when I think back on it, you know. But what she was doing, she was giving me some some of the skinny, you know. So like, I remember at one point she brought out these these um, these uh, albums. She had entire albums of photographs of men. There were like snapshots that men soldiers in their uniforms, and that she had, she used to go to clubs with her sister, and they would dance with these guys, meet them before they went off to war, and they would always you know exchange photos. Everybody would exchange photos all the time when they would dance and meet at dance halls, and so she had these. Entire albums filled with, you know, yeah. wow. and I thought that would be a much more longer, extended meditation inside the book. You know, there's a few sort of nods to stuff like that, yeah. but it's not, not really developed in a larger way. And it just, but it is. I, I hope there's one section where it does talk about her photo, where it might go, and it ends up in a, in a Japanese soldier's hands. You yeah. know, when he's at home, yeah. and he knows he should be thinking about his own wife, but he, there's this photo he has that he got from a dead American on some battlefield, and. You know. Being a soldier, being the military's in in your blood, in your DNA, yeah. almost. And, you, and yeah. but it more, and perhaps more to the point for mm. for the memoir, it's in the history. Mm. There's a kind of universal soldier, mm. almost, without actually thinking of Dolph Lundgren too much. But but that sure. idea of of you participating in this grander grander narrative, yeah, uh, or Flashman on the March or something, yeah. right? Yeah. But what? <laughs> it, well, I think of it the where I'm where I'm more troubled with it, um, or I guess I would say I'm troubled with the idea that, like, for example. It seems like a part of the tribe goes off in a large-scale way about every generation. And they go off to usually somewhere foreign, some far distant place. They go through a kind of test of fire. It's very much a hero's narrative. And they go through a test of fire. They, the hero who makes it through um, absorbs the losses from around him or her and comes back and doesn't talk about it. And that's been true for the most part in much of my family. Most of the people didn't talk to me. They talked about the periphery of war but not the interior of war, until I came back from one. And that's very common. I'm sure it's, I, I would imagine it's common here, where they might have like a, you know, it's, you know that they're old war vets who talk to each other over, over a pint in the pub, but they, maybe they haven't even said that to their own daughter or lover or whatever, you know, or their kids and stuff. Um, the problem, part of the problem I see in that is that, like, I revere my grandfather. He's a really good man. And, and my father and my... Uh, my you know, my uncles and in one sense in a deep and this is something I tried to learn in the process of thinking about the book is I realized that when I was seven years old I was learning that to be like the person to emulate and to be part of me would have to do something like that I'd have to go some through some similar journey do you know what I mean and come back from it and to understand them to be like them you know so it's a kind of pathology it's an inherited pathology. There's this illness that's handed down, you know, and isn't being dealt with generation by generation. You talk about the depictions of your childhood imagination playing, making sure. a film of. Sure. Was that? Was that? I mean, was there? We, a... Yeah, we were reenacting wars, and we were preparing in our minds, and and maybe um, we, we were. Now they think about it, we were always um, looking backwards because all the films were portraying something that happened or, or, or alluding to that you know mm -hmm. what I mean without even consciously we weren't sort of creating movies that were about some future war which could have been possible we didn't do that though so we were living things that we didn't know we were, I think we were trying to figure out through the vehicle of, of the mind's imagination and play or what we thought of as play or you know art and we were trying to understand people that we didn't understand I, I've got a friend who once um, he, he wrote a 
something a script, I think. It sounds like, again, it's like a stupid segue, but mm. and it was about the kind of rise of Formula or fast motor racing, Formula One, right, yeah. and the, when it was incredibly dangerous. Right, right. Yeah. And I think it's sort of post Second World War, and, and his kind of theory was, which I kind of which I liked, was it's a, it's a generation that grew up watching, um, ha having their fathers going off to war, and not having in Britain, not having a war, or maybe in Europe, not having a war themselves. And wanting to somehow emulate this again, this thing they didn't really understand. So go doing these incredibly dangerous in these what looked a bit like sort of cockpits. And I was wondering, is, is that? I mean, it, I'm not sure if it's exactly, but I, I I get that. I mean, I think it leads to maybe a different thing we haven't totally talked about, and it's the idea of there's a, an allure, and that's what I worry about with writing books about things like this. And, and that, and in part, when I was a kid, there was a, a seductive and alluring thing about there was a draw to this complicated, difficult space, and because it isn't often talked about, we don't have insights into it, it makes curiosity is driven by mystery, you know? So it feeds right into our, sort of, sometimes our natural curiosity, just to understand what is that, you know? People aren't talking about it, it's very difficult, you know? And, and but sort of shifting the conversation towards, like, Formula One and this idea, and because I think it really ties into, you know, I'm, I'm working at a gas station, and I'm making minimum wage, and I got this shitty job and I hate it and it's boring and the people treat me like crap when they come through um, I take a couple classes at the college and they're hey, to what point what end you know I take this class on 18th century renaissance stuff you know whatever renaissance thoughts connected the renaissance or whatever I don't know I don't quite understand it because I don't have anything from before that or after and then I'm supposed to also at the same semester take a class on um, I take a yoga class okay, so I'm meditating Meditate on what? I guess my point is like, there's this, there, um, a lot of people, how do I put it? Let me, if I could, I'd just erase that. Because what I'm really trying to say is this there are a lot of people that have these, sort of feel like they have these dead end jobs, and they don't know what they're going to do, but they, they're oftentimes young, and they're passionate, and they want to wanna live, you know? Like, they want to, like, be involved in stuff. And if you go to, if you go into Formula One, you, you press the metal, you know, the pedal of the metal, and you're going, you feel the wind and the rush, and, and life is on the edge, because if you, if you really push it, you, know, you could die, you know? You're really pushing thing, life to a, one of its limits, an apex kind of moment, you know? And then when you go to, you get together with a, a bunch of men and women in uniform, and you go off to some difficult place where people can be killed, you know? And you, you could die, or the people, if you make a mistake, someone to the left or right of you could die, and your lives depend on each other making smart decisions in a very difficult situation. And you come back to that shit job again, and you're pumping gas for minimum wage, you know? Or you, you know, changing diapers, and then you go to the supermarket, and there's long lines of food, six feet tall, on the shelves, and there's some, you know, just, it's vacuous. There's no meaning there, you know? There actually is a lot of meaning possible, of course. you know what I mean? But it's hard to see it, you know? And that's why I think some people, they want to go back, and they want to be back where every, the moment is so heightened. Because my experience in, in, in Iraq and during that, for the most part for that year was that the I felt like there was like a hermetic seal on the country of Iraq and like the past like in the in the memoir the past is really present it's melded all together but when I was actually there it felt much more like there was like there like I wasn't really thinking nostalgically about the past and I and I wasn't thinking much about the future but I was hyper centered in in the moment and, and like I mean that's normal because we I mean that's not normal I mean normally what we do is we're like we're creatures of multiple time zones yeah. you know like I'm thinking about, okay, you know, I um, 
Carolyn forgot her toothbrush in the hotel. So I was texting earlier to ask, ask my friend if she could grab the toothbrush, electric toothbrush, cost some money, you know. We said, grab it because we checked out the hotel, you know, it's a, over in Ireland, right? So, you know, we're going to go back, so I'm going to get to, you know, thinking about the toothbrush or, or taxes or whatever, you know. I got stuff I got to take care of, you know. Um, or maybe I said something stupid to my wife, I'm like, ah, I gotta, you know, what do we? Do? I gotta talk to her about that. You know, I haven't actually. I don't think, <laughs> but you know, what I mean? but those kinds of things, like we have things in the past, that are sort of lingering in our thoughts now. And then we have, like, I'm right here with you talking, and seagulls outside, and you know, and the French Revolution, and <laughs> you know, are here. And um, and then I'm also thinking, oh, that you know, I'm gonna tomorrow night, I'm gonna get to read with Ilya Kaminsky and Carolyn Forche, and that's crazy. You know, it's amazing. And um, so all of those time zones meld together and they're all here, um, sort of like they are in the book, you know. But the experience actually in combat was hyper in the moment, which is alluring, you know, to be where life uh, feels the meaning, that meaningful sort of moment. Even when it's boring, you, you, I don't know. I remember standing on a hillside um, overlooking Mosul, which is, you know, under great threat right now and there's da- it's dangerous and trauma and you know people there's combat going on and I guess uh, we were looking at it and I remember it was January or February of 2000 probably January of 2004 and there was it was a gray sky overhead and we could see the city off in the distance and it was on fire there was a black huge black plume of smoke burning from something and uh, we in front of us in the foreground was this motor pool of all these vehicles with the, the accoutrements of war you know helicopter off the with the engine, not like the Huey, but there's that tractor, there's this helicopter sound going by, of a Blackhawk probably. And um, and I remember my squad leader next to me saying, we're just sort of both looking at it, and he said, man, it's beautiful. And then he turned me, he's like, you're going to miss this, man. You know? And it's, I, I think that's one of, it's disturbing, it gets back to that pathology. Because it's derived not only to to repeat generationally and to you know, to figure out what the gen- what's going on generation before you before some of us but then there's also even in the moment a, a draw to continue to stay where you are rather than to, f- to be drawn towards it it's that I mean there's an amazing passage you remember with your father making napalm which yeah. obviously incredibly loaded <laughs> and it ends with you saying discussing a sort of relationship an imaginative relationship with death and I think you say that the final phrase is you wanted to be shaken by it, and I sort of immediately thought that you want to be frightened. But shaken is a kind of interesting word as well, because it's, yeah. you wanted to be excited, you can be awakened when you're yeah, shaken. Right? And, yeah, and I mean, it's, uh, death is everywhere in in, in in your work, but in a big yeah. in a bigger way. And yeah, well, I think you know it's interesting, and maybe this is part of the allure, and and the reason for asking, you know, did you kill someone? You know, these, these kinds of questions, because um, if you think about it, like each of us has the end of the world is built into us. Like, you know, so when people say these crackpot things, oh, the end of the world's going to be on this date. You know, it's happened several times over the last 10, 15 years even, right? The world is supposed to completely end. But, of course, that will for each of us, and we know it. But it's not a shared thing. Each of us, it's a very individual thing, where when we die, all of the thoughts we've had, all of the things, it all, it all the, the entire world takes place in that moment. You know, there's a, there's a death of the, of the universe in that moment, um, in a sense, right? But like in a war, you can, when he, when my squad leader was looking up, he says it's beautiful, and he was intrigued by it, obviously, and he's looking at this war zone in the distance, you know, near distance. Um, I think partly he's drawn to it because he, he's fascinated by the destruction and wants to understand what is that, 
because he has it built into him. You know, he's, he's going to meet it one way or another, but he wants to understand it because he's afraid of what he knows he's going to figure out or learn, maybe, at some point when he leaves.